Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey, Iyad. Hey, man. So what have you been thinking about today? I mean, uh, I don't want to say today, I'm going to say this week. Uh, because there are certain topics that kind of like uh, flow into each other and then you keep thinking about them. Uh, uh, it, it's kind of, it's it's strange because sometimes you get an idea and it's not very clear. And mm-hmm. then two days later, you see a tweet which reminds you of like, okay, that's interesting. And then you start building it up and then it, it, it kind of mushrooms into something big. And then you start, then you're like, okay, I can sit down and write about it. Uh, and recently I've been thinking, I've been seeing... Uh, you know, like uh, uh, Kawakibi Foundation, Kawakibi Center is uh, is uh, is bullish about on 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 Bitcoin. You know, yeah. Uh, we have you know we we have a Bitcoin strategy, and you know we're going to be talking a lot more about this maybe on the Arab Triumph Manual. But I'm starting to see this 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 evolving uh, this arising narrative among people on the center and the center left in the United States, at least. Uh, which is trying to tie Bitcoin enthusiasm to the far right. Almost like basically that, you know, these Bitcoin bros basically are eroding uh, Western institutions, almost as if Bitcoin itself and crypto in general are aimed at weakening Western institutions. Um, And I'm just thinking, you know, because, you know, I'm sure that you can comment and, and, and correct that, but... I feel that the narrative itself is coming from within, uh, you know, within people who are benefiting from more mainstream institutions, especially financial institutions. Uh, as for, you know, because for those people, everything works, right? Uh, the institutions work. They just can't imagine why anybody would want Bitcoin to be empowered because, you know, their own fin- whatever their financial world is actually in order. Yeah, because the system works fine as it is, right? Why would you want to undermine the system when the system exactly. is wonderful? So that's why the critiques to the system normally comes from outside the system, right? I can understand that a lot of Bitcoin uh, enthusiasm, a lot of Bitcoin bros, basically, are in it for speculation. I understand that. But it doesn't mean that Bitcoin does not have some really interesting and exciting features for people who are marginalized, financially marginalized. Um, in a way, that we're, what we're trying to do uh, and I think a lot of our projects in the future are going to make this cl- clear, is that we're flipping the tables on this narrative by tying Bitcoin to a progressive vision, uh, but also one that's coming from the outside, from the marginalized. Uh, but maybe you can speak a little bit about why, you know, why we would be excited about Bitcoin. Yeah, so... I've been, so over the course of 2021, I got really exhausted of seeing stories like, I mean, the latest was two or three weeks ago, maybe, of uh, one of the most long-established Egyptian human rights organizations shutting down. Uh, I don't know if you caught that, and that was basically because they were in too much danger and they couldn't even operate anymore. Um, And everybody who's ever tried to operate any kind of human rights organization in an authoritarian country knows uh the game is very different when the person who you're playing against actually controls the banks um and they can freeze you out at any time they can confiscate your wealth or they can just sit there and watch money come in and out and surveil the people who donate to you and make it known that they're under surveillance so that they uh you know receive the message and stop um and basically cut you off from society in that way 
Um, or maybe they just decide to make life as difficult as possible. They cut off your organizational account and they cut off your personal account. So you can't, tr- like, you can't live anymore. You can't support your family. Um, they can make it so that you can't receive money from abroad. You can't get funding for your NGO to do whatever work it is, whether it's, um, you know, actually uh, dangerous work or whether you're just trying to create opportunities for uh, young girls in a patriarchal society or uh, feed hungry people or whatever. Like, it doesn't have to be necessarily um, insidious to the government for them to dislike it. Um, so these these are basically organizations that funders, international donors, are happy to fund, but yeah. it's just too dangerous for them to receive the funding, and they can't like it can't be suspended or they can't use it or it can become make, it can't be made impossible for them to use it. Yeah. So when I'm seeing these critiques, I just think like again, it, it kind of connects to our last conversation about the U.S. centricism and how sometimes they can't comprehend that their government is not the entire world's government and their set of rules aren't everybody's rules. Like how far up your own backside does your head have to be that you can't even see that for some people having a currency which is uh basically privacy preserving and impossible to censor and decentralized uh is actually um a complete revolution from a human rights perspective and keep in mind your example about ngos etc we're talking about people who live in countries that already have a fully functioning uh, financial system. You're talking about an Egyptian NGO, for example, in this case, but it could be anywhere else. We haven't even talked about places which don't have a functioning financial system. You know, we haven't really talked about Yemen or Lebanon or Libya, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, uh, where... So or... I can add some color to that because, yeah. uh, you know, my, my family's situation in Libya is, I guess, the same as everybody's situation in Libya, but there are people who are on like $200 a month and their salaries are six months out of date, like six months overdue. Mm. Um, and when they come, you basically have to go and queue in the bank sometimes 48 hours in advance because the bank has a limited amount of cash and when it's done, it's done uh, because the country has a liquidity crisis. Um, there have also at different periods been withdrawal limits. So you can have the money in your account, but good luck trying to get it. Um, and on top of that, you're not allowed to actually uh, spend it, uh, like with a bank card. Um, so you can't buy anything online, um, which I mean, you're basically starting to wonder, what can you do with this money? <laughs> like, if it's... Are there people in Libya who are leaning into Bitcoin? There are a few. As a solution? Yeah, it's not very uh, loudly spoken about yet, but it exists. Um, I've been speaking to my cousins there who've been telling me like, yeah, we know where to get it. This is how... It works. It seems like there's not a very widespread understanding of it. And even the people who do know about it don't know about it very much. They don't understand it deeply. But it's good to see that it actually exists. And it's now even an option if I want to send. uh, So how I used to send money to Libya was uh, I'd have to either give cash to a person who was traveling from here to there or find someone who can accept cash from me here and, and give dinars in Libya or even dollars or whatever. Or I can Western Union the money to Turkey because there are people flying from Istanbul to Tripoli more regularly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, good luck trying to support your grandmother's surgery or your cousin get his graduation or whatever you want to do. Um, I mean, one, and, one person, of course, a friend of the show who's, uh, who's, uh, who's done a lot of work on this and a lot of, he's written a lot of essays on this is, is uh, Alex Gladstein. Shout out to him. Um, he's, run se- he's written several essays about this. Uh, I think he's written about Afghanistan. He's written about Palestine. 
Uh, and recently, he actually just sent me the manuscript of a book he's writing called, he, the, the title of the book is Check Your Financial Privilege. And it's it's full of examples of this. And, and you know, not just, not just analysis, but also real world case studies about uh, this is, you know, this is how bit like the, the title says it all is like the critique is coming with from within a position of financial privilege. Um, it's really interesting in 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 the example of a country like Yemen, where uh, not like you know a lot of people are on the on the edge of starvation and it's almost you know it's very difficult to send money, uh, and it's really interesting to see that some Yemen it's not a lot it's not it hasn't become a movement but it's really interesting how people will learn any technology that they need to use, even if it's complex, uh, you know necessity is the mother of invention so. You really think this is beyond these people sometimes and then they blow you away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love Alex's work and I recommend it to pretty much everyone I talk about. Uh, I talk to about it, especially uh, my favorites are Uncovering the Hidden Costs of the Petrodollar and uh, The End of Super Imperialism. And these are basically the essays that radicalized me because uh, you kind of get into it thinking this is like a really interesting technological uh, invention and then when you go down the rabbit hole, you come out thinking this is actually the end of US empire. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing how he actually went. I think so. The more I, I read his stuff, I see that he himself went down a rabbit hole and that's how he ended up writing such deep essays. But it's really, it's re really, really interesting. Um, we mentioned Yemen and I'm, I'm switching topics a little bit here. Actually, I'm switching topics a lot, but uh, I've been reading a book recently. In fact, it's the, the book is right next to me here. And maybe sh shout out to the authors. Uh, it's, it's called Sectarianization. Uh, and it's a book which is edited by Nader Hashmi and uh, Danny Postel. Uh, so the thesis of the book is really about uh, how, uh, you know, a lot of people speak about sectarianism almost as if it is endemic to the Middle East and North Africa. The thesis of the book is that we should be speaking about sectarianization rather than sectarianism, because sectarianism is not endemic, uh, it is not essential, but there are processes by which you know authoritarian actors basically sectarianize societies because it's, it's to their benefit. So this is basically so pushing back against the American ancient hatreds thing, which uh, like the idea that very sectarianism much, yeah. is just a part of these societies and always has been. Uh, very much. And the, what's interesting is that it's, it's very academic. So it's actually a slow read. I mean, it's not something that you can read, uh, you know, uh, in, in one sitting. It's, it it's requires... It's not page turner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's academic language, so it's like condensed language, which uh, I respect. Uh, and it's organized into chapters. Every chapter has its own, you know, it's written by, by a different author. Um, and it's like, I think, 12 chapters, and I'm on the... I just finished the chapter on Yemen. And it just happened that this happened around the same time that uh, the Houthis, uh, you know, were throwing missiles at the United Arab Emirates, which is a whole new thing. Maybe we'll come back to that thing. Um, but it was interesting to read the origins of all of this, because a lot of the time we get caught up in the in the current events and we, we miss the, the context of like, how did this happen? How did we get here? Hmm. Um, and I was, you know, because during the early, uh, the early Arab Spring, post 2011, of course, you were, you were 18 years old at the time, I was 33. And that's when we started following each other uh, online, etc. But if you remember, I, I had not covered Yemen deeply. I went from Egypt to Libya to Syria. 
Uh, and then I went, you know, from there I went on to bigger projects, Arab Triant Manual, Arab Spring Manifesto, etc. Um, so I really like, I, like Yemen was not uh, 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 an uprising that I completely understood. So it was refreshing to understand that. But to summarize their argument in 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 the book or in that chapter, they 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 say that the problematic part really started with the uh, GCC brokered transitional uh, framework. So, so what happened is that in 2011, Yemen had an uprising. And uh, the, the dictator, his name is Ali Abdullah Saleh, he was ousted, forced basically you know, out of power. And uh, several GCC countries, including Saudi Arabia, including the United Arab Emirates, who are currently like, involved in the civil war over there, uh, they decided to negotiate a transitional framework. That transitional framework had some serious flaws. One of them is that it gave it uh, it gave immunity to to Saleh, and that allowed him to continue to exist as a spoiler and try to come back to power in other means. And he basically allied with his his with the Houthis, which uh, which were his his previous uh, you know enemies. Uh, but it's also essentially what it did. the The framework itself also excluded the Houthis. Uh, the Houthis right now, the Houthis, uh, so maybe these terms are, are kind of obscure to some people. The Houthis are basically the rebels who are fighting against the coalition uh, movement in, uh, the, sorry, the, co the, the Saudi UAE co coalition in, the, in, in, in Yemen. But and what's interesting is that most people... a theocratic movement. Uh, so it's, it is a theocratic, it's basically a populist, uh, religious populist movement. Um, what's interesting here is that most people think that there's only two parties to the to the war in Yemen but actually there's there's multiple ones I think there's four parties so you have to speak about the Islah which is kind of Muslim Brotherhood and these are against the Houthis but also against the UAE uh, and, and, and 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 the Saudis I think there's some intersection with the Saudis and then you have you know the the, the southern separatists which is again a different group uh, multiple groups you know it's basically it's not it's not really that clear cut. But what's interesting is that during the uprising, the Houthis and the Islah, who are currently fighting each other, used to be uh, collaborating. But what happened is that this transitional uh, framework, what it did is that it created a situation where the Houthis are excluded. So the Houthis became spoilers because they have, they're not invested in this, in, in, in this order. So mm. they don't gain anything from supporting it and they, they, win every, they gain everything by overthrowing it. So that's how, you know, this is the, the thing that opened the door to... Iranian intervention to planning for a coup, etc. Um, what they what they argue for in the in the book is that uh, you know the, the the author uses a word misrecognition, uh, which is like basically this. They're like they misread the actual fault lines in Yemeni society. They they treated Yemen as if it is polarized along sectarian lines when actually it wasn't. So when you you know when you impose that framework, it basically sectarianized the country. It became a self fulfilling it prophecy. Says, yeah, yeah. Uh, but eventually, they also like you know this was not a, the roadmap was not like the transitional roadmap was not a roadmap to democracy anyway. Uh, that was really sad. I mean, it was really sad how the chapter ended. Uh, the chapter ended on the note that the war has torn the social fabric in ways that might might be irrecoverable. And mm -hmm. a Yemen, which is, uh, you know, contemplating a post-war Yemen is a painful exercise. A Yemen polarized along sectarian lines is now a, a social fact. It's, it's just really, 
I mean, when you go, because at the beginning of the chapter is talking about the uprising. And then from there you go to this really, really stark image. But in the end, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is what uh, Mohammed bin Salman wanted. I mean, maybe what this is what they wanted. No democracy in Yemen, you know, destroying the possibilities of, you know, uh, the possibility of democracy in Yemen, but also creating a failed state. You can't really discount the idea that it could have been deliberate, but in... You know, in well, in the world generally, you can never really discount the post the likelihood that it was complete ignorance and incompetence either, and that's also been a theme in the region's uprisings. Like Egypt, a lot of their uh, breakdown was based on the choice of a really bad electoral system, which polarized the country. Um, Libya, so much of uh, what ultimately happened there was, uh, uh, you know, or originated in a really bad attempt at doing a debathification process. Um, like it's, it's bad policy imposed from the top and from the outside again and again. Um, and it's never something that they weren't warned about. Uh, like people criticized the, the Yemen deal at the time saying impunity will be completely disastrous. If you let this guy keep running around, he'll, he'll never stop. And yeah, I, never I forgot the part, I forgot to mention the part, the, the part where he, he eventually was killed by the Houthis. I think it was the Houthis who killed him. I'm not, not completely sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, f- I feel like we, we dove into extremely serious topic. And so I feel like I want to like, I want to end on a, on a, on a more lightheaded note. And uh, you've, you've told me that a lot of the stuff that you've been reading ser- uh, uh, recently has been about psychedelics. Uh, and, you know, comparing that, you know, con- uh, you know, comparing that how it fits within the, the, the traditional mental health uh, paradigm. So yeah. what, you, do you have something about that? Uh, I'm not sure if it's lighthearted. The topic itself is pretty, you know, dark sometimes, but it's interesting that a lot of the criticism of the traditional mental health paradigm is basically that they're kind of teaching you through different techniques to manage your emotional state in order to better coexist with the world as it is around you. Even so they're basically telling you you're broken and fix yourself so you can fit better with the world when sometimes you're fine. It's the world that's broken. Um, and it's not really a healthy thing for you to be learning to accept it and and live with it. You know, you're meant to be angry with it. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that because I did CBT. Uh, so uh, my recovery from PTSD involved both, uh, I, I started with CBT and then I did, uh, what do you say, a psychedelic therapy as well. And that mm. was like, it was it was great because they worked together. CBT is about behavior. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, psychedelic therapy is about self-awareness, uh, m- most of all. Um, and I did feel that there is a disconnect because I come from a certain background. I have my history. So I come in with a lot of anger. Uh, and then CBT would be telling me, you need to control the anger or you have to see it in a big picture. While at the same time, the self-awareness is telling me, Actually, your anger is completely justified. And it would be crazy if you're not angry. Like, anger is actually the healthy response when something like this happens to you. Hmm. Uh, and that was kind of an eye-opener because I think that's was, that was when I started to, to say, okay, maybe I need to be more proactive about my, my, uh, my therapy and my recovery. And I need to understand that these are tools. It's not like, uh, you know, my therapist is not my boss, uh, hmm. but he's someone who's trained to help me, you know? Yeah. Um, so I found this cartoon of, uh, it's like a, a drawing of a bunch of trees that have been chopped down and there's a koala clinging to the stump of one of them. 
and the guy's pointing at it and saying, this one has a mental illness. Its behavior is not right. Because it's clinging to the stump of a tree when it's actually doing like exactly what it's in its nature to do. It's just that, you know, they destroyed its habitat. So do you know that the koala is actually a very stupid animal? Uh, I didn't. Is it like a sloth? Uh, it, it is. Uh, it was, uh, uh, as far as I know, it is, it's, it's, it's one of those a- animals that actually is, is, is pretty low IQ. Hmm. Uh, it only lives on one tree. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it only eats, it actually eats the eucalyptus when, because, because the eucalyptus is poisonous to everyone tree? else. So it's like it evolved to survive on the one thing that nobody else would eat. So it doesn't have competition, but also mm. it means that it has, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's digestive system has to, has to work with that. So they're cute, but they're not very smart. Uh, so that actually sounds similar to a sloth in that they have a really inefficient digestive system. Oh man, the sloth story is a different story. The sloth, the sloth used to be a huge animal. It used to be giant, a giant animal. It was like, you know, uh, you know, when, when human like beings bear? appeared in, in, uh, in the Americas, you know, uh, I don't know, it was 12,000 years ago. This is speculative around 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, sloths basically ruled the continent, right? Uh, and then we hunted them down, like we as a human, you know, you know, human beings. We we hunted them down, and eventually they had nowhere to go, so they eventually climbed up the trees and went for, you know, started eating nothing but, uh, you know, but uh, but but plants, uh, to the point that you know, they, like we we nerfed them so bad that now they, you know, they became sloths. Like this this killer animal became a sloth, uh, thanks thanks to human hunting. To the point that I actually read this somewhere that sometimes eagles, uh, when there's a sloth in their uh, in their territory, they le- they don't even kill it; they leave it alive because they use it they use it to train their young. <laughs> that's, anyway, that's there's a story very, about very about sloths and avocados that I'll, I'll I'll say for another for 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 another session. Sounds good. Catch you next time then. Catch you next time. Salam alaikum. Salam. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.